Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're excited to be on the air with you today on a very interesting topic. You've probably read about it or heard about it, and it seems to be coming more prevalent, and it may be particularly important as we try to fill the, uh, the human gap in the manufacturing line that they predict to be something like 1.5 million unfilled jobs over the next 10 years. So we're going to be talking about industrial robotics, and we have a very interesting guest who's got a lot of experience in the field, and they are actually making and shipping industrial robots. We will talk to him in just a moment, but before we do, I'd like to talk to my co-host and see what's going on on his end. Lou, how are you doing this morning? Uh, Doing pretty well this morning. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm welcoming uh, our guest before you even introduce him, so thank you for joining us today. Uh, Just a little bit of postscript of our uh, previous show, uh, we had uh, Brad Holcomb from the Institute of Supply Management give his uh, report on business uh, as he usually does every month, and uh, the numbers were good, and they're going in the right direction, and I think if anybody's uh, doing business planning or strategizing that you ought to listen to the show because he does give us a full hour of his, uh, I'm sorry, a full half hour of his input as to what has happened in the last uh, 30 days or so. We also had uh, Professor Adriana uh, Sanford uh, on our show. She's uh, also a regular, uh, and she was uh, bringing us up to date on an interesting topic that not a lot of people are really all that aware of, or if they're aware, they're not as overly concerned as they should be. And that's the Microsoft case with the U.S. government regarding what has been known as the Dublin emails. And if you haven't heard about it, or if you not haven't, uh, haven't heard, had any interest in getting in deep in this, I strongly recommend you do, because if you don't, we could all wind up being in trouble where our products will not be able to be sold in uh, other continents because of technology issues. So I'm not going to tell you a whole lot more about that because it's a very complex issue and it needs uh, a greater mind than mine to explain that. Um, so I strongly recommend that you go to mfgtalkradio.com and listen to those uh, previous shows or any one of the 85 other shows that we've done. Um Regarding uh, next week's show, which I want to give just a little uh, heads up on, uh, that's going to be uh, the forecast uh, of Maypie, uh, the uh, Manufacturing Alliance Productivity Initiative, uh, and we'll have an hour's, hour's worth of insight and forecasting about what's coming down the road six months a year ahead. So we're going to give it to you with what was and what will be. On that note, Tim? Thanks, Lou. That was uh, very interesting. I want to get back with our uh, topic today, which is industrial robotics. This is a fascinating uh, technology that is going to be more, become more and more common on manufacturing lines. And we have with us today a special guest, Jim Lawton, 
He is the Chief Product and Marketing Officer for Rethink Robotics. And I'm going to have Jim explain what Rethink Robotics is. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks. Uh, appreciate being here. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Lou. Well, we appreciate having you on. It's uh, an exciting topic. But why don't you give our listeners an idea just what Rethink Robotics is all about? Sure. Yeah, so the company was founded uh, in 2008, and it really came out of um, a perspective that, you know, when, when, when most people think about robots, they think about, uh, depending on the generation they come from, they think of Rosie uh, from the Jetsons, they think of uh, the Predator, uh, they think of R2-D2, um, but, but the reality is that most robotics that are used today in industry are big, heavy, expensive uh, um, unsafe to be around unless you're protected by a cage or some other safety mechanism. Uh, they paint things, they move big chunks of metal, they weld things. In fact, in the U.S., 65% of all robots are in the automotive space. Um, and yet, what, what's, end up ha- what's en- ended up happening in manufacturing has been if you have one of those tasks, you use one of those robots. And they work really well if you're going to build really large numbers of the same thing. Um, and what's ended up happening is that um, every other job, the human becomes the plug. The human becomes, whether it's a good job for a human or not, a human's in there trying to do whatever these kind of big industrial robots uh, can't do. And, and so, you know, in the middle of this uh, decade, we really kind of sat back and said, you know, there's got to be another way. There's got to be a different kind of a robot that um, is safe to be around. It doesn't have to be in a cage. It doesn't cost, you know, huge amounts of money. It doesn't require uh, roboticists and people with master's degrees in automation engineering to deploy. Um, there's got to be a way to create a robot that if today you want it doing uh, one job and tomorrow you want it doing a different job, um, you can go do that. And, and so that really led to to the company Rethink Robotics, and our name came from, you know, let's rethink the field of robotics and see if we can a better way of thinking about all of this stuff. And um, we introduced our first product in 2013 and um, have been shipping it ever since. Now, Jim, that robot, I mean, from this explanation, gives me the impression that it isn't uh, bolted to the floor in a fixed location where it would take a significant uh, uh, piece of planning to move it. In fact, it may be more mobile. Is that correct? It is. Now, one of the things that we've heard from a lot of companies has been once a, a more traditional piece of automation is put in place, you the act of deploying the automation looks a lot like if you guys remember the movie uh, Apollo 13, where they trying to get back to the United, we're trying to get back to Earth, um, and they dump a bunch of parts on the table, and then they spend time figuring out how they build a solution. That's what most uh, deployments of automation look like. I've got a robotic arm. I've got this cage to protect me. I've got cameras and vision systems and sensors and conveyors, and I, and I do a project that results in this thing getting implemented, and everything gets bolted down, and once it's there, it's there, you know, it's there for a long period of time. In fact, I have you know companies that I work with today that call these um, uh, you know monuments. In fact, they work with a guy that's got a big sign up in his office that's you know no more monuments. The problem with these things are um, you know they give you productivity, they give you efficiency, but what you end up losing is flexibility and agility 
like what happens if I need to respond to, you know, okay, today my client is you know, 12, 14 year olds and they don't want the red one, they want the blue one. Um, or market demand is shifting or, um, you know, BMW has a program called BMW Individual where you can get your car made any way you want. How do you deliver on that expectation that consumers have and do it really efficiently? You need robots that are just much more agile and flexible uh, than anything that we've had in the past. And so, you know, so these robots are, you know, so they are inherently safe. Um, you don't program them. Um, you show them what to do rather than, uh, rather than uh, write lines and lines of code. They're inexpensive, um, and they can be moved around. So you can move them into uh, one position today and say, look, I want you attending to the press break. Um, that's what you're going to do today. Go. And, you know, tomorrow you say, look, you know, I really need some help loading this rotary table. So you move it over there, set him up, and off he goes. And so providing that level of flexibility that just isn't possible with uh, you know, the, more, the more traditional forms of automation we've had over the last 30, 40 years. So how does the process uh, work? Uh, I'm a manufacturing company, and I make uh, mm -hmm. uh, widgets. I make the number one widget, two widget, three widget. And I'm looking to uh, improve the efficiency, improve quality, maybe cut back on humanoid hours, uh, and I call your company. Mm -hmm. what's, what's the next step? The next step is really um, doing an inventory of the tasks that make up the manufacturing process, what are the actual things that are being done, and which of those are um, – either not good candidates for humans. Um, so, for example, uh, I mentioned tending to press breaks a little while ago. Um, we have one customer of ours where these press breaks are in an area in the summertime. It can get to be 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, obviously, you get your hand in the wrong place and you can lose your hand, so a lot of safety precautions have to be taken to, uh, you know, to keep the person safe. Um, you know, some of these make great candidates for robots. Obviously, if the you know the robot loses its end effector, that's not nearly as uh, you know as impactful as a as a human as a person losing their hand. Um, and then the other places to look for what are the good candidates for for these kind of collaborative robots, where you've got tasks that you run them for a while and then you need to go do something else. Um, they tend to be human cadence. They tend to be um, repetitive tasks. Um, uh, one of the ways, interestingly, to identify some ideal candidates is to look at the facial expressions of the people that are working in the plant. You know, if they're smiling and they're happy and they're engaged <laughs> and they're using their mind, those are not the ones. If they're bored and they wish the break would come a little faster and why can't I get five weeks of vacation instead of two, you know, that's a good candidate for, uh, you know, for, for this kind of a robot. I mean, you mentioned in the opening, uh, Tim, um, you know, 1.5 million jobs by 2020 that aren't going to be filled. They tend to take longer to fill manufacturing jobs. And the reality is, you know, millennials in Generation Y don't want manufacturing jobs. They want other kinds of jobs. They want jobs where they can develop and grow. And there are certainly those within manufacturing, but there are a lot of people doing stuff today that are that are not those kinds of activities. And so, that first step is really one of, you know, let's see what the manufacturing process is. Let's see what the tasks are. Where there's some opportunities to leverage some of this new form of automation. Now that we've broken some of the constraints, it's not going to be bolted to the ground. It's not going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's not going to require a PhD to be able to program the robot. That opens up a whole new category of, uh, of opportunities. The, the, the 
say that despite all of the work that's happened in robots over the last 30, 40 years, and there's 100 to 50, 150 to 200,000 robots sold every year, 90% of the tasks in manufacturing today that could be automated are not um, because it's not practical or economical to do so. So all of those become uh, candidates for these kind of robots. Well, you bring up uh, an interesting point in that, um, you know, there are many organizations uh, around the United States today who are uh, attempting to woo uh, the the young uh, young kids coming out of uh, high school and uh, perhaps send them in the direction of, uh, of manufacturing and uh, fabrications and so on. Uh, there are about 600,000 jobs right now that are going unfulfilled. Um, is there a point in time that you would even hazard a guess looking into the future saying that uh, that we will never we will get to a point where we will never need human interaction and manufacturing or that a significant portion of those jobs will go away? I don't think we'll ever get to the point where the majority of manufacturing will be completely lights out with no people. Um, if you think about a lot of the principles behind uh, and continuous improvement and let's work with the process that we have today, use our um, creativity and our insight and our innovation. I mean, one of the one of the aspects that humans are extraordinarily good at, um, you know, is agency or free the ability to make decisions um, in very ad hoc and ambiguous kinds of environments is to make whatever we have better. So can we take the manufacturing process we have and make it better? Can we make the product that we're manufacturing producing and can we make it better? And humans are, and I expect for a long, long time to come, are going to be uniquely qualified to, to be able to add that value. If I'm a manufacturer and I have a, um, a workforce that has people that are uh, focused and driving on making my products and my processes better, I'm going to be in a much better com uh, competitive position globally than one that's just kind of doing the same thing over and over again. And so I think the, the, the question becomes, how do you bring together the robots with humans that bring free will, agency, and creativity to the equation um, and, and harness the energy of the strength of both of those working together to be able to make the manufacturing process more efficient, uh, more responsive, uh, you know, drive additional growth, allow you to get to scale much more quickly. I think that's where the real opportunity lies. Um, I don't think in our lifetime for sure we'll ever see people-less uh, manufacturing as the permanent solution in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jim, okay, I'm, I'm curious about the two robots that you have. You have one called Baxter and you have one called mm -hmm. Sawyer. And you mentioned in your preview of Rethink Robotics the ability of to, t to take baby Baxter and say, I want you to handle the press break. How does Baxter know what to do? Mm -hmm. So it's funny. My, I, 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 um, in, in, I think when he was 11, and um, one of the things that I did was I, I showed him, so here's our robot, and you know, of course, Daddy's cool because he works at a robot place. But here's our robot, Baxter. Um, you know, let, let me show you how to let me show you how to use him. And you know, within a matter of minutes, he'd kind of like a lot of 11-year-olds pushed me aside and said, "Look, I got it, Dad. Let me let me do it." I mean, in five minutes, he's <laughs> up and running uh, because because you don't program the robot. I mean, you you literally. I mean, the, the the analogy I would use when my son was much smaller, and I wanted to show him, 
you know, how to tie his shoes, I got around behind him and I grabbed his two little hands and I showed him how to tie his shoes. And once I showed him, I mean, it took him a few times, but once I showed him, he got it. These the same way. So um, I can show the robot, you take the piece of sheet metal from here, you put it into the brake, you activate this button, you wait till it's done, you move it over here, and then you continue on. Once I've shown it that task, it's going to be able to do it over and over again. By the way, because it's an optimized piece of computerized equipment, it's going to be able to do it more efficiently than what a human can do it. Um, and then you're done. You've never touched a keyboard. You've never touched a mouse. You've never touched a line of code. Um, and so you've shown it uh, almost you know, on-the-job training. So instead of, you know, Joe showing Mary how to run the press break, Joe is showing Baxter how to run the press break. And when it's done, it's done. And he just does it repetitively over and over again. Are there some kind of visual learning system? Does the, Baxter uh, Baxter, has, Baxter has three cameras in it. Uh, he has one in its head and two in its arms. Uh, in, in, in its hands. It, it uses the ones in its hands for a number of different things. One of them is uh, um, being able to understand where he is and um, where the various pieces of equipment are in his um, environment. So, for example, uh, if you think of, all right, somebody's coming in today and they're going to be packing boxes. All right, there's the empty boxes. There's the stuff that you're going to pack. And when I'm done, I put the full boxes over there. You've basically got uh, four locations. You've got the empty boxes, the stuff you need to pack, and where they're going to go, and then you need, and then me. Um, the robot uses the cameras in its hands to be able to understand where those things are, even if they shift around. So if the stack of empty boxes is not in the same spot today that it was yesterday, you and I would be able to figure that out and continue doing its task. But these kind of robots can too because they're using the the uh, the um, visual capabilities in their hands. If something shifts in the environment, the uh, to detect that, okay, something is now different than it was before. Let me reorient myself to what's going on so I can continue to perform the task. That's one of the things that allows these kind of robots to work without um, having to be bolted down because normally with a, most, the vast majority of robots sold today are, are what's called position control robots. I, I tell it go from this position in space, you know, 0, 0, 0, 2, 1, 2, 3, and it goes there. Um, the safety thing gets in the way, by the way, is if you happen to be in between, you know, 0, 0, 0, and 1, 2, 3. Um, but it'll go, it'll go right there. But what if, what if you're standing back further than you were before? What if the table that you are grabbing the parts from is shifted a little bit? If it's on wheels, I have to be able to accommodate all of that. And so it's the ability to use the visual systems uh, to be able to do that. If I'm picking up off of a, a conveyor that's moving, I, I use the, the, the 3D sensors and the visual sensors and the cameras to be able to you know, understand that the part's moving where it is and then go pick it up in the right place and move it on. So the, the, um, the, 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 the question that you're asking around the role of embedded vision is actually a pretty, pretty powerful one because the alternative is um, either I do without, and that has a bunch of challenges, or um, I have to be an expert on cameras and robots and how do I get them talking to each other and how do I write all the code so I get the right information out of the camera and I tell it to the robot and then I have the robot do the right thing and then feed it back again. Most companies don't have that expertise. They don't want that expertise. I mean, if you look at most of the people that have deployed robots today, they're large or very large companies. 
small and medium-sized businesses where arguably the majority of our innovation comes from have been largely left out of automation because they can't afford and don't have the ability to go staff a bunch of master's degree and Ph.D. roboticists on site all the time to be able to deploy robots. Um, so, so this idea of you know, democratizing robotic technology and allowing all of us to be able to benefit and not just a select few from being able to have these kinds of robots. Um, the cameras embedded into the system are just one, you know, one great example of, uh, you know, making them accessible to everybody. Fascinating. Lou, I'm, uh, I'm, my head's spinning from all of the things uh, I think these, these could do. How about you? Uh, yeah, actually, that's been happening a lot lately on a lot of our shows. Uh, we're really hitting on a lot of <laughs> topics that are uh, really way out there, and uh, I, I, we we appreciate hearing about it. And we we know that our listeners uh, do as well. Uh, going back just to job uh, losses due to robotics, uh, and and that big fear, and that, that's that's the big boogeyman, in, in, I think, in your world. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in terms of being able to market and promote the product, I, I guess the question is uh, what what you what we might lose in jobs as a result of uh, robotics. How many jobs are being created by the robotic companies and associated and affiliated manufacturing companies that support robotics? Uh, is there a wash? Is it uh, is robotics? Uh, I know robotics. I think right now is about a forty billion dollar industry. Is that is that a number mm -hmm. that uh, that you agree with? Uh, yeah, that's it's in the range. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, I, I uh, think the uh, oh, go ahead. Well, so again, getting back to that point, is the uh, robotic uh, work population going to uh, displace or, or replace in numbers the people that we're going to lose as a result of robotics taking over manufacturing jobs? I think the I, and new forms of te technology drive productivity growth, productivity growth, which in and of itself then drives increases in standard of living, um, and that's a beneficial thing from a country perspective and a society perspective. Um, this kind of technology is going to allow us to. Uh, drive our efficiencies and our capabilities to entirely new levels, and, and generally speaking, I think that's I think that's pretty good. Um, another aspect of the kind of the kind of the question in and around jobs and and, and opportunities for people is, um, you know, if you, the idea of, of uh, uh, creative destruction. I mean, if you go back a hundred years ago and list out the main jobs that people have, most of them don't exist today. And if you were to say, what are the jobs a hundred years from now that people are going to have? most of them don't exist today either. So we're going to go through this transition where many of the jobs that we have today uh, will go away and then many more will get created in the future. Um, and so this big question, first one you just asked, which is how many get created in the future versus the number that get replaced? And I, I don't think they're actually really good at that now. I, um, most of the time what we have found is that the challenge with looking at the jobs that are going to go away is I can give you a list. Right? These are the ones that are going to start to disappear. And if you're in one of those jobs, you should probably think about doing something else. Jobs that are going to get created, I can't give you the list. Right? I can tell you some of the things that are going to start to happen, but what we found with um, human creativity and our ability to leverage technology 
in ways that we didn't think about often are bigger, better, more powerful, more capable, more interesting than the stuff that we had thought about. And so um, I can start to tell you about some of the jobs that are going to exist, some of the jobs that we're starting to see get created, um, but I think there are many more that haven't even been considered yet because we haven't figured out how to leverage all of these kinds of technologies yet. I mean, if you think about, so at the core, these robots, they're safe, they don't need a cage, you show them what to do, you don't program them, and they're, and they're very inexpensive. And we're talking about them in the context of manufacturing. But what's to say they couldn't be in our home for uses for elder care or uh, exploration or search and rescue? I mean, if you think about the kind of robot that I would want my mother to have in our house, um, it would be safe and you show them what to do and it's relatively inexpensive. Um, she's got a very unstructured environment, just like um, you know a lot of manufacturing environments are. Um, you know, my mother thinks of, uh, you know, a Python as a snake, not a programming language. She's never going to program a robot to do something, but if she says, hey, go get the coffee out of the microwave, and it does it, that's a pretty useful thing. I mean, a lot of countries are experiencing this um, uh, demographic inversion where um, the, the population uh, that is needing services as the population is aging is getting bigger than the population that is able to provide the services. So in, in the United States, in Japan, in China, um, you've got this upside-down scenario. Our founder um, uh, actually talks about, I'm, I'm, I'm building a set of capabilities so that we have robots that are going to take care of me when I'm older um, because the reality <laughs> is there aren't, going to, there, there aren't going to be enough people around. Um, I'm going to need something to do uh, some of those tasks. Um, and, I mean, if you think things like sometimes when people get older, they unfortunately are no longer in a position to drive. And so, you know, they have to be driven around, and that's where all of these, you know, automated vehicles, um, you know, start to come in play. But, you know, if you look at, you know, like a big Mercedes S-Class, what is it? It's a big, grand, luxurious car. Uh, it's also an elder care robot. I mean, if you think about the technology that's in it, um, the ability to detect pedestrians, uh, nighttime vision. If your reactions aren't as fast as they maybe were when you were younger, it can stop for you. Um, so it's, it's, it's embedded with all kinds of technology that are allowing uh, you to be in control and to be able to, um, and, and to serve the driving purpose without having to rely on other people to do that. So I think this kind of technology is going to be leveraged in a, you know, in, in, in a bunch of different ways. I think the, the other uh, so there's the question of you know how many jobs get created versus get destroyed. I think there's a timing issue. How fast do the old, the jobs that we had ramp down versus come up? And is, are there people that get stuck in the crunch uh, in, in between the two? I think that's a kind of a real issue. And then I think the um, the, the last one is uh, you know technology drives productivity, drives increases standard of living. Um, uh, but from a, kind of this broader topic of the distribution of wealth, who benefits from that, and how do we make sure that we've got the right policies in place at the, you know, at the at the at the nation level to be able to help us think through what are the best ways to make sure um, people are benefiting from all of this new technology and not just a very select few. Um, so I think there are a lot of things that are kind of in play here. I, I'm generally optimistic about. Um, the jobs that are going to get created. I'm seeing people um, supervising groups of robots. That job didn't exist before. Um, I'm seeing um, people interacting with the artificial intelligence that's now embedded in some of these robots, where historically robots were pretty dumb. You told them to move and they moved. Um, robots are now able to do much more stuff, but they're also much smarter. Um, and so you've got jobs that are getting created where people are working with 
um, robots in more cognitive ways and not just in physical ways. That's creating opportunity. Those are the kinds of jobs that you know Gen Ys and millennials are really interested in. Um, and I think it's going to be that kind of group of, you know, think of think of um, so in some ways a robot um, a robot is a device platform not unlike my iPhone, and it's got an operating system in it not unlike iOS. And just like in my iPhone, somebody kind of cool, interesting people are creating apps that I would never would have thought of. People are going to go create cool, interesting apps for these robots that people have never thought of that's going to create another whole category of jobs. So um, I don't know what they all are yet, but, but a lot of the early ones that I'm seeing are pretty exciting. So the point that I was thinking about while you were making all those references is that is there such a thing or will there be such a thing as intuitive intelligence or will there be tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of apps that will appear to be uh, intuitive intelligence? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so intuition is a pretty tricky thing, but um, but I think we'll start to see increasing levels of um, logic and and uh, smarter robots that are moving generally in that direction. Um, in, in the manufacturing space, if, if, if you or I are doing a, a production process and that requires us to pick out of a grid, uh, you know, think of like a, um, like a, a dozen eggs. Um, if we pick out of that first um, grid slot and it's in a different spot than where we expected, we're going to still be able to figure out how to pick out the rest of the things, even though it, the, the carton is clearly shifted. Um, the robot should be able to figure that out too. Um, it shouldn't kind of blindly go, okay, the first one moved, but the other 11 are going to be in the same spot I originally expected them to. So being able to do you know, things like that, scene recognition, um, you wheel me up to the press break, I should be able to figure out you probably want me to operate the press break. Um, and so I should be able to reduce some of the cognitive load of the user so the user doesn't have to um, get involved in kind of the detailed inner workings of the robot and get involved more in the, this is what I need you to do today, Baxter. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more um, speech recognition. So, uh, you know, the Amazon Echo has some amazing capability in it in terms of its ability to understand voice in ways that are better than any other technology that I've used so far. I think you'll start to see technology like that in these robots. Um, there's really interesting research going on right now of if I, I mean, pretty complex, um, to be able to tell somebody precisely what to do um, without showing them something is hard. Um, if I use just my voice, I get a certain accuracy. If I point to things, I get a certain accuracy. If I start to combine them, where I'm pointing and speaking at the same time, now I get a much greater accuracy. And so there's a lot of work going into how do we create the algorithms that are able to harness uh, natural language with gestures to be able to help people interact with robots the way that they would want to interact with a person, which is to have a conversation, to talk to the robot and show it what to do. Um, rather than get behind a keyboard. And so I think these technologies are going to um, start to come together to be able to you know, make, make more and more of that happen over time. Uh, on, the, on that note, I think that we're going to take a commercial break, and we'll be right back. But I do want to leave uh, uh, Jim with one question, because uh, at the beginning of the show, you said that computers are not going to likely have a human-like look. 
uh, we're listening to you for a half hour, and it's sounding to me like why can't we have a human-like look for certain types of functions? So I'm going to leave you with that. Think about it. We'll be back in just a few moments. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're talking about industrial robotics or industrial robots, and we're talking with uh, Jim Lawton, Chief uh, Product and Marketing Officer with Rethink Robotics. Um, Jim, Lou threw a question at you just before we uh, took a commercial break Mm -hmm. about the look of a robot. What's mm-hmm. happening in the area of robotic appearance? Yeah, so it's it's a, it's a pretty interesting um, set of developments there too. If you look at the the robots that I mentioned early on in the show, uh, they're welding metal. I mean, they don't look anything like a person. It's it's um it, you know it's a big, heavy, um, uh, scary uh, to be around kind of robot. And um, if you think about the jobs. Um, that we want robots doing and the kind of tasks that we want them engaged in in manufacturing, those tasks are very close and and working in very collaborative ways with with people. Um, If I go build a robot that scares you away and makes you step back when you get near it, um, you're not going to want to be around that robot. And so there's a lot of thought that went into how do you design these robots in ways that are not only intuitive and and easy to, to use and obviously inherently safe to be around, um, but also draw you in rather than you know, repel you away. 
And so if you think about things like uh, Baxter has a face, um, it has a face for a few different reasons. First, it has a face because, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a display, so I can kind of see what Baxter is seeing through its cameras. Um, but it's an, also an indication of um, how things are going with Baxter at any given time. If it's um, doing its task and, and processing parts, um, it has a certain look, certain expression on its face. If it goes to grab a part and there isn't something there and it isn't quite sure what to do, it'll express a look of confusion. And so if you're, if you're near it, you know that the robot is confused and, 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 uh, and perhaps needs some help. Um, but also um, what's, what's less apparent is the face is a way to indicate um, what the robot is about to do in the same way that a human would. So if you think of you know, I'm sitting here at a table right now with a can of soda in front of me. If I were to go grab the can of soda to take a drink, um, my eyes would look at it momentarily before my hand moved. And if, and if you were sitting here with me, you would see my eyes move, and then you would see my hand move. And I'm not conscious I'm doing it. You're not conscious I'm doing it. And yet it's giving you an indication of what I'm about to do before I do it. Um, we build artificial uh, intelligence, what's called anticipatory AI, into the robot that provides the same insight into what the robot's about to do. So if it's about to move its left hand to go move a part, um, it looks there with its head, its head physically turned in the direction of the part momentarily before the arm actually moves. And it does that to give you an indication of what's about to happen. You, being around the robot, you may not be conscious that that's what's going on, but it's providing you a level of comfort with, okay, I know what the robot's about to do, and if I can get comfortable with its uh, activities and, 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 and know what it's about to do, then I know it's not going to hurt me. Um, and, and I'm more likely to be able to get comfortable in the robot because uh, I can anticipate more of its, of its behaviors. And so the face plays a pretty, a pretty critical role in that as well. The other, um, the other work that we did, the research that we did as we were thinking about designing Baxter was around, I mean, at some level, the, the face is a display, right? I mean, so I could put a picture of any of our faces up there, and um, the, the problem with that becomes um, what's called cognitive dissonance in that it looks exactly like a human because we've actually put a human's face on it, uh, but it doesn't behave exactly like a human. That makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, it's creepy. Um, if, on the other hand of the continuum, you make the face look like a cartoon, um, I mean, what manufacturing executive is going to want to have a bunch of cartoons running his manufacturing process? And so thinking about what's the right way to design a face that conveys these actions, conveys what it's uh, experiencing in terms of the task that it's performing, um, doesn't look like a toy and doesn't look creepy. Um, and so a lot of uh, Baxter also has two arms. I mean, he has elbows. It has a humanoid-like appearance. Um, you know if you're going to go grab the arm to show it what to do, you instinctively know where to grab the arm because it's not unlike where you would grab the arm of a human. And so um, all of this plays into how do I get a robot that's going to be um, I'm going to get I'm going to get a lot of comfort with very quickly. I'm going to be able to deploy really rapidly because I'm not in the robot getting feedback from the robot. Um, and then as I need to move them around place to place, um, it's it, to adapt 
uh, leveraging all of these uh, all of these technologies and these aspects that were designed into them. So there was a very significant uh, kind of body of work that went into um, what's the right level of a, you know, what's the right kind of appearance, um, the fact that we should have a face, what that face should do. Um, if I show it to uh, if I show it to pick up a part, um, when I'm done, it nods. It says, which is effectively conveying, yeah, I got it. Um, and so it's helpful for you as the person showing them the task to know that the robot's got it. Okay, it's got that one. Now let's move on to the next. Um, so it's, it's, it's playing a lot of those kinds of roles that really help in the successful implementation and deployment of these kinds of robots. Um, does Baxter learn from – oh, let me ask you a different way. Can one Baxter learn from another Baxter? Not yet. Um, but that's not that far off. I mean, if you think of, so I used to work for Hewlett Packard running operations for a number of years, and we used to have a saying inside HP, if HP only knew what HP knows, how powerful that would be. Um, there were a lot of people experiencing and learning things in the company, and if we could all benefit from that, um, I mean, that would be transformative. If you think about robots, you know, today a robot will um, be able to gain insight about its process and learn, um, but why would you want to have 10,000 robots learning the same thing um, when one of them can learn and share it with the others? And so today these robots' um, brains are largely embedded on the robot. The model that we're moving toward, um, certainly Rethink Robotics, but I think generally speaking from an industry's perspective, is more uh, cloud robotics where you have a portion of the brain responsible for kind of the direct control, the nervous system, if you will, of the robot on the robot, and then you have a portion of the brain that exists in the cloud. So you can envision points in the time where um, if I've learned, if I, the robot Baxter, I've learned something about my process, I can share that with other Baxters and other robots that are doing similar kinds of things. Um, you can also imagine um, a robot experiences a part uh, or a tool that it's never used before. Um, it'll be able to use its embedded vision to shoot a picture up to the cloud. The cloud comes back and provides information. Oh, what you're looking at right now is a, you know, is a torque driver. Here's how it's used. Um, here's the kinds of places where you would use it. And so it's gaining insight as a result of being able to benefit from a kind of a broader chunk of knowledge. So. Um, there's no question as we continue to progress down this path, and this this space of these collaborative robots is, is really early, um, but there's no question that they're going to be learning over time. What, what's, 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 I think, really uh, interesting is that a lot of the technologies that we talk about, um, additive manufacturing, some people are using uh, 3D printing to create new hands, um, and so the robot may be creating its own hands with 3D printers. Um, if you think about um, big data, advanced analytics, machine learning, um, if I'm able to take the data that exists on the robot and combine it with other forms of uh, structured data, other forms of unstructured data, and then apply analytics to it, I can start to predict um, uh, certain things that would be helpful in my manufacturing process. I can also discover new insights about um, things that I can do to, to improve the process. Um, so for example, um, 
I mean, one way to think about a robot, if you want to abstract from it, it is it's a big bucket of sensors. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of telemetry data in these robots. I mean, they have four sensors in all of their joints. Their arms are mechanically compliant like yours or mine, so if you bump into something, there's a certain amount of give. Um, they can feel their way into fixtures in, in ways that, that, that humans can do. Um, and so you've got all of this data. If I'm applying a certain amount of force in a task that I'm performing, um, it may be that there's a certain amount of torque that's been defined into the spec, um, but when I combine the actual uh, forces that are being applied with data like how many parts are failing in the field, what are our warranty costs for this product, what is the feedback that we're getting from people calling on the customer support line, I combine all of that data, I may find that, well, when the robot drives the screw with this amount of torque in spec, it's okay, but when the, tor when the robot drives uh, the, the torque in another range, it may still be in spec, but it's creating a greater degree of problems in the field. Well, let's, let's just not do that. So, I mean, I think initially that feedback is going to start coming back into a human that's going to make some uh, decisions and analysis and, and will uh, change the robot to do it differently. Um, but where this is going clearly is in certain circumstances, the, it's going to be closed loop. It's going to feed that information right back into the robot, and the robot is going to change its own behaviors to let's start driving the torque at this level and not that level, and as a result, we will see less failures in the field and less help the customer. So, so the idea of um, learning robots is definitely um, on the path forward. So how far down the road is it going to be for me to be able to order a chauffeur with a driverless car to be able to take me around? Is that in the next 10 years? I think it's I think it's in that time frame. Yeah, no, I think you will start to see it. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know what um you know, the, the business plans of companies like Uber and Lyft are, but eventually you could envision that um, essentially those are a bunch of driverless cars. I pull out my iPhone, I uh, say I want a car, and a car shows up at my door and takes me where I want to go. Um, and there's just a set of robot-driven or automated cars kind of running around the streets that are available when you need them. Um, I, think, I think we'll start to see that. There are also companies making investment in uh, you know, walking robots and packing robots. And so, you know, you could envision robots that, you know, you order something online, the car shows up, the robot gets out, brings it up to your door, sets it at your doorstep, and moves on. I mean, those things, I think, are all are, are all coming. I think the um, the, the challenge, uh, well, there's, there's, there's a couple of challenges with, with the uh, self-driving cars. One of them is I think we'll need to work out um, all of the liability issues. Um, so if the car crashes and hurts somebody, whose fault is that? I'm not driving, um, so it's not me. Uh, so is it the guy that made the car? Is it the guy that made the system? Is it still the driver? I mean, so I think there's that, that whole piece of it. But the other aspect is, coming back to some of this artificial intelligence thing, um, and the anticipatory AI, if you were to create an entire system that was completely self-driving cars, that would be substantially more straightforward than the reality of the way that it's going to work, which is we're going to have a mixture of uh, self-driving cars and human-driven cars, and that adds a lot of complexity um, uh, because humans don't always operate in the way that would be most conducive to, uh, to the way that the self-driving cars would want to operate. But you also have things like... Um, you know, if I'm at a crosswalk and a car stops at the stop sign and there's a human driving the car, 
I'm going to look that person in the face and I'm going to get a level of comfort, good or bad, with is he going to not move while I walk across the crosswalk or if I start to go, might he go too and then I get hurt. And I'll make an instantaneous decision, either decide to walk or decide not. If the car is being driven by, a, by, a, by, a, by a automation, it's a self-driving car, now who do I look at and how do I get that same level of comfort? Um, and so the way in which kind of humans and self-driving cars um, are going to interact um, is, is still an area that's being that's being developed, but 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 those are those are all sol- very solvable problems. Um, well, I, and so I think that I think that time would also uh, aid in that. I mean, if we had that kind of technology today, that obviously the first uh, six months a year, you would look at the driverless car and say, "Do I go or don't go?" But ten years from mm-hmm. then, uh, with the, with the safety records and so on and so forth. You won't need to see the face. We will be conditioned differently. Uh, we'll yes. have more feeling of reliability. Um, mm-hmm. But it's coming. I'd like to know it where I coming. can put my order in. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I, you know I, I always say that there are car people and not car people. Um, some people view it as transportation. Some people view it as an enjoyable activity. I definitely fall into the latter category. Um, on the other hand, you know, when I fight the commute in the morning, I'd love to have the car doing the driving while I'm doing something else. Um, so I think at some point we'll all get to experience that. Uh, Jim, Tim? question for you on, on when you're uh, programming, uh, programming is probably not the right word, teaching Baxter. Mm-hmm. Does Baxter hear? Are we using our voice to teach Baxter a task? And by the way, how big is Baxter and how big is Sawyer? Sure. Yeah. So Baxter's not hearing today, uh, but that's also capability that's on our roadmap. The the ability to um, uh, to, to hear in manufacturing environments. Some are pretty noisy. Some are not. Um, and then the ability to to discern uh, language um, and being able to operate on that is is, is getting uh, substantially better. It's progressed. Uh, very rapidly, even in the couple of years that, that, that Baxter's been out in the market. Um, so we will get to the point where we'll have um, robots listening, robots talking, robots gesturing, robots looking not only at, uh, not only hearing, but also looking at what people are doing. And um, through gestures and facial expressions and sound, um, use analytics to bring that together to form uh, you know, points of view and insight um, that will be helpful for the robot to do its job. Baxter, so I, I refer to Baxter as, um, I don't know how much of a sports fan, but uh, help me with the analogy here. I think of like Baxter as like a linebacker. I mean, he's a pretty good-sized guy. And the waist up, it's about 165 pounds um, and got a couple of big arms on him. Um, Sawyer is, is going to be smaller, so he fits in a two-by-two-by-five-foot um, uh, space. Um, so I guess that would be more the running back. I don't know. And um, But, uh, you know, so more nimble, so you've got more of these robots and kind of uh, tight proximity with each other and with people, um, a little bit smaller. Um, the arm of a of a Sawyer is about um, well, the total weight of the Sawyer is about 42 pounds versus the like 150. So um, you know, quite a bit lighter um, as well as smaller. Now, being light and small, does it still have, uh, for instance, hydraulic capability to be able to move heavy objects? It does. In fact, it's actually able to lift more. Um, the, the payload capability of Sawyer's is uh, is greater than it is of Baxter. Um, we've designed, 
each of these robots to be able to do their particular categories of tasks really well. And for the kind of um, machine and um, uh, part transfer tasks that Sawyer's going to be really good at, it needed a heavier payload, so it's got stronger uh, joints to be able to, to be able to support that. Lou, uh, what do you think? Where are we going with this one? This is a this is a wild subject. Fascinating well, I, information. I, I would I, I would like uh if Jim would uh give to our listeners uh contact information uh so that those can get in touch with uh, the company or Jim directly uh on any project they may think that this uh they would have an application here. So uh Jim, why don't you give us that info for our listeners? Sure, definitely. So anyone looking for more information, um, I'd probably send you to the, the website, which is RethinkRobotics.com, all one word. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm active on Twitter. Um, it's at Jim underscore Lawton, uh, so my name with the underscore in between the two. Um, from the Rethink website, you'll be able to get to the YouTube channel, which shows Lots of applications of lots of customers doing different things and the approach that they've taken. There are also a lot of um, uh, tutorials and videos to show people, here's how you would use the robot to do something like this. Um, and then there's a number of kind of white papers, too, that just give more background. That's probably the best place to go for, uh, you know, for additional information. Okay. Uh, the economics end of uh, the product, uh, you have two different versions. Uh, Obviously, you'll get imp improved efficiency and, and productivity. Uh, you also won't have a robot that goes on two-week vacations and uh, five days of sick leave a year. And you could probably actually have them working all night long if you want them to. Uh, what What is a basic cost? And I would think that uh, uh, you would have different options and add-ons and uh, apps uh, for various uh, robots, but is there a base number that one would uh, look at and say, hmm, that this is uh, really doable if you look at it from a total ROI standpoint? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the ROIs that we typically see are anywhere from 6, 12, 18 months. The, the, the base robot today for Baxter is 25000 for Sawyer is $29,000. Um, and then you need to add some hands. The hands uh, could be um, uh, pneumatically actuated end of arm tooling uh, grippers, um, electrical parallel grippers, uh, vacuum suction. Um, so there's a range of kind of hands that you know run from you know a few hundred dollars to you know a few thousand dollars in the vast majority of tasks that you'd want the robot doing. Um, all in, these robots are um, you know substantially less than than fifty thousand um, dollars. If you think about an application. Um, I've got uh, a customer that we work with today that um, their their setup, they had a machine tending task. They have people tending to this uh, piece of equipment, and they're running in two 10-hour shifts. Uh, so 10 hours in the morning is one person, 10 hours uh, the next part. Uh, so they're running 20 out of 24 hours a day, and they take and they have four-day uh, four work weeks for those two people, followed by an additional two people running four more days. So you've got four people that are loaded cost about $45,000, so $180,000 to tend to this machine 20 out of 24 hours a day. 
Um, Baxter's now tending the machine 24 hours out of 24 hours a day, and as you point out, no breaks, no vacation, um, and he's uh, you know quite a bit less than 50 to deploy versus 180 um, previously. So this, yes, this so is that's really typical of the ROIs. This this is really inexpensive. Really, it is. You know, between computational power and the sensors, it becomes so much cheaper. If you think about, you know, the 3D sensors that are sitting in a connect on top of uh, my son's Xbox One. I mean, there's so many consumer applications that are driving down the cost of the components that we're now then using as part of the robots. Um, is allowing the robotics industry to really benefit from uh, so many of the uh, technology developments. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing, and uh, so. I'm sorry. The number you said was six, six times in eighteen within eighteen months. Return Anywhere on investment. From six, yeah, six to eighteen months is a typical ROI. Well, that's, that's fantastic. That's certainly something that uh, some of our listeners should be talking to their accountants. But make the call after the show. Uh, <laughs> we don't want you to go away yet. There you yeah, go. this this is incredible. Jim, is there anything else uh, that you have uh, come across when you start uh, this whole process that is particularly unique or was surprising to you about uh, robotics? I think the um, the, the piece that uh, I think will catch people off guard is most people think about robots, as we talked about a little bit earlier, as, as you know they're there to 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 replace the human and the human goes out of the picture um and and what's different i believe about this category of robots is the real power isn't going to come from taking the person out of the picture it's going to be bringing the person closer to technology and the innovative interesting things that are going to come as a result and so i think that that aspect of it when people experience it for the first time when you see a robot holding something while you're doing an operation to it and you're working interactively with it, and it may be doing the unsafe component, and you're doing the part that requires more of your um, the, the analytics and more judgment and more creativity. It, it's really amazing to watch, and and that part is, um, I think, pretty interesting and pretty powerful. Um, it's going to do a lot of really interesting things that we have only begun to think about what those are. That's amazing. Well, Jim, we certainly want to thank you for being on the show. This is uh, fascinating information. Again, for our listeners, uh, RethinkRobotics.com is a website. Lou, anything else you want to ask yeah. Jim before we wrap up today? Yeah, I, I might add that uh, as the technology changes and grows, uh, please uh, stay in contact with us uh, so we can help uh, bring the message to uh, the marketplace of anything uh, major and new, so uh, keep in touch with us. Uh, and again, thank you for being on the show. Uh, yeah, I just you. want to I just want to mention that the uh, at the end of the show, you'll be able those listeners who didn't hear the whole show, you can go to mfgtalkradio.com and listen to the show. Uh, it'll it's loaded, I believe, right now actually. Um, and uh, the show on July 21, Maypi, uh, is going to be giving us their U.S. outlook forecast for the rest of the year and slipping into 2016. Actually, I think they've got some pretty good uh, numbers for us, and uh, perhaps the rest of the year is going to look uh, actually quite good. 
So that being said, uh, Tim, uh, we'll be talking with you in a week, and uh, I turn it back to you. Great. Uh, Lou, it's been great. Jim, again, thank you for being on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. We'll uh, look to have Jim back in the near future. We do want to get an update from him on what's happening in the world of robotics. This was a terrific amount of great information. I want to thank all of our listeners for being with us today. We'll be back again next week. That kind of wraps us up today for Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at msgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.